It's the second annual Nerdy Awards! Join us as we celebrate another year of the Nerd Byword by awarding all of our favorite nerdy content of the year, the coveted Nerdy Award. The Byword starts now. Welcome to the two-year anniversary of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast that will not marry you in a quickie wedding in Vegas just to divorce you six weeks later. We're bonded for life, people. I'm Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris, and we are celebrating two years of the Nerd Byword. So strap in because we are getting ready to do the big annual Nerdy Awards. But before we do that, it is, of course, time for... And Chris, uh, you have an important MCU update for us. What's going on? Well, I'm I'm, I'm adding a little bit non-MCU there at the end, but we've been jam-packed news-wise for the past few weeks, so we haven't really given our reactions to some huge trailers that have been released. Okay, so there's a lot of quick hits here. First, it's been a few weeks since the first ever footage of She-Hulk was released. While many fans were highly critical of the seemingly unfinished CGI, the overall reception seemed to be pretty positive. Uh, Subsequent photos of further rendered images have gone a long way in reassuring the anxiety of fans. Overall, I think the show looks incredibly fun and truly unique in regards to the wider scope of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Something that we've talked about extensively. Now that we're at this stage in the MCU, we're going to have to really start going unique to make it to break up some of the monotony. You had me at legal comedy. It also gave us an instant qualifier for the meme hall of fame with Jen carrying her Tinder date across the threshold like a tiny infant ragdoll. Second, we got our second full-length trailer of the much-anticipated summer blockbuster Thor Love and Thunder, including additional footage of Jane Foster, perhaps better known as the Mighty Thor, and our first look at Christian Bale's Gore the God Butcher. While a a handful of comic book purists are critical of the lack of ear tentacles and the Voldemort nose, I think he looks incredibly menacing, particularly with the hints of the Necrosword. Add to this the fact that the directorial vision of one Taika Waititi is chicken soup for my goofy-ass soul, and this is easily one of the most anticipated comic book films for yours truly. Finally, we just got our first full-length trailer of Diego Luna's Andor during Star Wars Celebration, which is wrapping up as of the time of this recording, while an exclusive look at Mando Season 3 and other trailers are under tight surveillance by Disney et al. for only those in attendance of the event, Andor certainly stirs up those hopeful feelings of rebellion in fans once more. The series is scheduled to officially hit Disney Plus August the 31st. There are a score of additional news stories spinning out of Celebration, but we'll tackle those head-on next week. Dave, your thoughts on all this stuff. Okay, so uh, that's a lot of quick hits. Let me see if I can uh, react to those uh, quickly and efficiently. Uh, The Thor trailer... Uh, is very exciting. I think I think that whole trailer is a mood, man. There is just a lot going on there, um, and and the humor seems to be really on point. And I'm very very excited to see the mighty Thor in action. Uh, I'm a big fan of that particular comics run, so this is a, kind of a dream come true to see that on the big screen. 
Um, She-Hulk, uh, I too am uh, critical of the CGI. I've seen several things uh, recently on Twitter that um, the trailer has been posted on uh, Disney Plus, and there has been apparently already some improvements to the CGI, including additional texture and the like uh, added to She-Hulk's model. I think that is still a work in progress. Um, and I think we just need to be patient and see how the final product shakes out. I will also say that the trailer gives me shades of Dan Slott's run on the character, I think, uh, which is really not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, more on Slott's run later uh, in our episode. But uh, I, I think this is going to be on point. Uh, the humor looks to be uh, in the right place there. Uh, Andor... Um, Short, sweet, and to the point, man. Uh, I love Rogue One with a red hot glowing passion. I think it's probably out of all of the Disney produced Star Wars movies, my favorite. There's your hot take. Um, and so seeing Andor is is at the top of my list. That's probably out of all the series that are coming, the one I'm probably most excited for. I'm a very, very big fan of Rogue One and and seeing that character and his sort of genesis and kind of where he came from and why he was the way he was and who he was in Rogue One, that's really, really exciting to me. So, so yeah, it looks like we got some good nerdy content coming. Yeah, I think, um, I think going back to that rebellion era is just like a good bread and butter coming back to the well for Star Wars, because that's one of the core things from the original trilogy that, that other time periods have kind of lost in that, that inspirational thing. That's such a core to Star Wars. And so I think it's an important thing to kind of remind us of again. And seeing this story played out by one of my all-time favorite actors, I I love Diego Luna so, so much. And so seeing him uh, front and center again is 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 so, so exciting for me. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about all these projects. Um, but Dave, you've got some some news that is a little bit disheartening. Yeah, so apparently uh, there was a Marvel MMO in the work that has been canceled before we ever really got to see it, which is somehow the second time that the same company has canceled a Marvel MMO. So I don't know what's going on there. Uh, So we're talking about uh, Daybreak's Dimension Inc. studio, the same studio that developed DC Universe Online, was for a while set to develop an MMO based on the Marvel Universe. and we know very, very little about it. I mean, the game was announced last year. Um, and it was very, very sort of a, a low, lo-fi sort of announcement. There wasn't really a lot um, t- that was announced about it. There was not a lot of footage shown. There was sort of a cinematic uh, trailer. And that was it. Um, as far as gameplay, we know nothing. Um, and everybody seemed to be like, you know, kind of low-key about it. Um and then suddenly, boom, here we are. It's canceled. Uh, so we never got to see any real footage of it or anything. And it seems very odd to me, especially with a studio that developed DC Universe Online, no matter how you feel about the quality of that game, that you know this is like two times they couldn't get a Marvel MMO together. I'm not quite sure what the problem is. If you can do it with DC, why can't you do it with Marvel? And Marvel in particular, I think you know, with the brand recognition and everything it's got now from the movies and stuff, uh, it should be like, you know, a piece of cake to put an MMO together based on the Marvel Universe. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but it's a little disheartening that the same studio has already canceled two Marvel MMOs. Maybe it's time for somebody else to take a crack at it, Chris. I, I... See, I didn't even, I wasn't even have, I didn't really have my ear to the ground with this, but I'm just going to go take the macro approach to this. 
and, and I've said this before, Marvel video games as a whole are so underwhelming with one of the most identifiable IPs in all of pop culture. The fact that they cannot continue to churn out like high, high quality video games. You have, of course, the Spider-Man exclusives over at Sony, but I can't make comments on that because I'm a Microsoft guy. Um, the only exception that I make to that that has been highly enjoyable in a previous nerd commendation is the Guardians of the Galaxy game. And that was like a diamond in the rough. Nobody really expected a whole lot of that. The sales were underwhelming because of the aftermath of the Avengers debacle. Like, how in the world can't we get our stuff in order for Marvel? They seem to be putting a lot of energy into mobile games, which it's, uh, I mean, the less said about mobile games, the better. So it is, it is it is so frustrating to me as a Marvel fanboy to not have quality video games. And DC is lapping them in terms not of the, the, the two departments that DC is laughably ahead of Marvel um, is animation and um, video games. Because like you look at the Injustice games and even the ones that are being teased, say what you want about Gotham Knights. Uh, a lot of people are very critical of the gameplay footage and whatnot, but at least they're making something. Marvel is just keeps crap in the bed when it comes to video games, in my opinion. And I say that as the biggest Marvel fan in the world. And I think that is absolutely accurate. I think that is overall really a problem that we're facing with Marvel. Um, and I and I think, you know, it's just not an area. Ways, it's not an area of focus. It would seem like, I, and I don't understand why. Well, DC is pretty similar, though. I mean, in that regard, wouldn't you say, like, video game wise? But if you you know just look at the Arkham games, sure, those were you know really really amazing. But but beyond that, I mean, what has what has DC put out video game wise that really like grabs? I mean, I know they announced a Wonder Woman game, but we don't even know what state that game is in. They can't get a Superman game off the ground. I don't know what to say to that. Um, the uh, Suicide Squad killed a Justice League game, which is developed by you know uh, Rocksteady, I believe, the same people that did the Arkham games. That's been delayed, um, and we don't know how that's shaping up. I mean, DC has their own problems over there with with their video games. Um, it just seems like the most obvious thing that you'd be able to take, you know, these iconic characters and develop video games around them. But apparently it's not that easy, Chris. It's funny because maybe it's just like a collective thing by both, by both companies that they don't want to compete in this market in the, in the, in the age of Fortnite and call of duty and, and what have you is it's not something <laughs> you said <specific>. duty. <laughs> that's <laughs> how I, duty. that's how I feel about it. Um, it's just not something that they're interested. I think that like the days of X-Men legends and Spider-Man two and, and the Arkham franchise, I think those may just be behind us. And I don't know that we'll ever go back to that unless there's an active push for that. It just doesn't seem like that's the case. I mean, you, you've got the Spider-Man games, of course, like I said, it's Sony that seemed to be a focal point, but other than that, it doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot going on. I think we'll have to just um, admit that these two companies are leaving money on the table by not focusing on video games because, you know, video game um, sales are significantly higher even than like money profits made by the movie industry. Like they're let, they're leaving money on the table here that, you know, I, I just that that doesn't make sense. to me. And, and I'll say this. Here's another property that I've been dying for a good one for. And I'm still anxiously waiting for Shredder's Revenge and this Kawabunga collection that's still set to release i think next year like i'm actively drooling day in day out waiting for those releases 
All right, well, don't slip in the drool and fall on your face there, Chris. <laughs> All righty, folks, well, there you have it. That's it for Nerd News. Stick around as we are about to present the second annual Nerdy Awards. What nerdy content caught our eye this year? Find out. Stick around. Ladies and gentle people, we are back, and it is time for this week's And boy, oh boy, is it a big talk indeed, as we are celebrating our two-year anniversary here at the Byword. And we are, as we have started last year, our little tradition, giving out our nerdy awards to our favorite content that we have encountered over the past year. Now, we have several categories that we like to hit here. Uh, we'll talk about some comic book series, including uh, on currently ongoing uh, back issues, indie comics. Uh, we'll talk some about video games, TV shows, of course, actors in movies and television, uh, and then, of course, writers and artists. Uh, so to kick it off, Chris, we are looking at our uh, the best ongoing comic book series. Chris and the nerdy goes to that would be X-Men Red uh, by Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli. Um, I know that we have talked about how difficult the jumping on point it is for X-Men books, but um, I'm, I'm going to give you like the, the cliff notes version here. So last year, uh, last summer, um, the mutants of Earth were looking for a place for the Arako uh, mutants to to settle because um, things have been, tensions have been high, you know, as always with mutants on Earth. Um, and so they took an uninhabited planet of Mars and completely settled it as planet Araco. They terraformed the entire planet for this group of displaced mutant refugees and created an entire planet. And so X-Men Red, the red planet, if you will, um, is completely surrounded by that. And, um, as far as, as as world building goes from a writer's perspective, and I'll get more into this later, there is no one better suited in my mind than Al Ewing. Um, he's right up there with Jonathan Hickman with this macro um, idea of building a culture, building a world, a whole class of characters, and then at, at the same time, simultaneously having these minute details about each one of those characters that is just mind-blowingly... Uh, on point for me. So um, X-Men Red is far and away the comic that I am just dying for the next release date. So uh, do yourself a favor and read some X-Men Red. Yeah, see, uh, this actually sounds interesting to me. Um, I've tried to dip into the X-Men stuff several times, as you know, in a struggle, um, as you know, um, I'm, I'm kind of more of a superhero kind of guy, you know, and, and I like when the X-Men are more superheroes and a little less, you know, starting their own countries and terraforming planets. But I will say that the hook for this particular series sounds interesting enough that I might have to give it a try, Chris. And, and, and as I've said this before, I've nerd commended it before, but if you like the traditional quote unquote, super heroics of the X-Men, then I highly recommend uh, the current one by Jerry Duggan. They've kind of returned to form with that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds nice, man. All right. So this seems like a popular pick for your best ongoing comic series, Dave. 
Yeah, the nerdy goes to Nightwing by Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. I'm going to say that uh, it is not an exaggeration uh, to state that um, Dick Grayson is one of my all-time favorite characters. And watching his evolution from Robin to Nightwing, his time in the Titans, and all of that stuff has been just always a lot of fun. And yet, for some reason, the character kind of fell into numerous funks over the last few years. I remember in the aftermath of Infinite Crisis, um, crazy old bald guy, Dan DiDio, was really pushing hard to kill off Nightwing um, as like the big sacrifice because he just didn't get the character. Um, That kind of left him then in a funk because... Uh, as it turns out, they really didn't have any plans for the character, even though they didn't end up killing him off. You know, several creators came in and tried to revitalize the title. Then we had most recently the unfortunate incident where they decided to shoot Nightwing in the head and take all of his memories. And then he was running around as Rick Grayson um, and not really trying to be a superhero's Nightwing. And that was that was a choice, guys. I, I will say that was a choice. Um So Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo come in and they just have this deep love for Dick Grayson as a character. And it just, it just kind of seeps through the entire thing. The art is absolutely gorgeous. The character is written spot on. It's just like a return to form for Dick Grayson. It is right up there with some of my all-time favorite Nightwing stories. And I think that this run is going to go down as one of the all-time greats when it comes to the character, Chris. I mean, yeah, there's there's little um, there's little to like criticize about this because I mean, like um, Tom Taylor is one of the people that I follow as far as a writer goes. I haven't I haven't taken the dive yet, and then what I've seen of Bruno Redondo's art, I mean, it, it's absolutely stunning. I mean, particularly some of the covers with like the cityscapes and everything, and and the Eisner nominations tend to agree with you as well, Dave. Yeah, I mean, that's when the Eisners really get it right, my man. Alrighty, folks, our next category and the next nerdy is for Best Back Issue Discovery, where we talk about some older comics that we discovered and just can't believe that we missed out on. So, Chris, the nerdy goes to... Listen, let me tell you, man, I have made the most of that flash sale of the DC Universe Infinite Annual Subscription. I got it for half price, and I am getting my money's worth and then some. And my biggest discovery, the biggest thing that has made me fall head over heels is Green Lanterns, the Rebirth series written by Sam Humphreys with art by Robson Rocha, uh, Lord rest him. Uh, it's just an incredible talent. Um, also uh, art with uh, Ronan Cliquet and Eduardo uh, Pansica. I absolutely, I'm telling you, Jessica Cruz is one of my all-time favorite superhero characters already. And it's only been like 36 issues that I've read of this series. I mean, when I, when I say that people look for characters that they can relate to, look no further than Jessica Cruz. In a day and age where mental health is at the forefront, rightfully so, of so many talking points, um, I see this as kind of like a, a more relatable play on the worthiness of Thor, uh, Odin's son in particular. But that's only relatable to a point because he's Asgardian royalty and he's a god. This Jessica Cruz is an everyday person um, that 
really struggles with her anxiety. She, long story short, she witnessed a murder on a camping trip of her friends and she hid out and was the only survivor. And she has that survivor's remorse. She locked herself uh, in her apartment for three years, did not, you know, leave. And, you know, with the pandemic and everything raging, um, a lot of us can probably relate to that being encapsulated in our homes for an extended period of time. And then for her to go through this, this journey of feeling like she's enough and that she's good enough to be a Green Lantern, overcoming her own self-doubt and that of her partner. Um, and that's the other strength of this series. Now you have another creative team taking on like the second, uh, about the final third of this chapter. So I, I'm not here to comment on that. I'm talking about the 30 some odd issues by Sam Humphreys and company. Um, but but uh, with Simon Boz as not only like uh, an important character as far as Muslim representation in comics, but also a, a very, very diametrically opposed character. They're, they're stark contrast to one another, and that's always a great storytelling device to play off one another. He's this overly confident, cocky butthead half the time, and she's so unsure of herself and her own worthiness um, and then to watch their relationship grow as they're paired up, they're forced to work together. Um, probably one of the greatest achievements by Hal Jordan is pairing them together. And that's a character that um, literally is as appealing as a, a discarded cardboard box. So um, I've really loved this series, even with the shakeup and the creative team. But I'm particularly nerd commending slashed. Uh, award uh, winning, uh, handing an award to the Green Lantern series as written by Sam Humphreys and art by Roca, Clique, and Pansica. Absolutely love this. It's an absolute revelation, and she has skyrocketed to my number one spot at DC. Yeah, so I am uh, a big fan of the series as well. I actually got uh, the physical copies uh, down in one of my uh, downstairs in one of my long boxes. Um, I, I think Simon Boss and 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 Jessica Cruz are very very good additions to sort of the Earth Green Lantern group because they do mix things up a little bit. Um, the Earth Green Lantern group has been um, well for one very male. Um, and for another, you know, very, very, um, besides John Stewart, very white. I mean, there's a retcon with Kyle Rayner, but you know that he is part, uh, part um, Latinx. But that's another story. Um, so really, you know, having having those two characters kind of a diversify, not just you know in like in in a in a diversity sense, but also like in a character sense, is uh, really really important. And I think the series works so well on on so many levels. And I just, I would really, really, really at this point just like to see um, Jessica take a more prominent role, I think, in the DC universe. I think she's a character that would play off of other characters in the DCU very, very well. So he, here's hoping we'll get more of her in the future. Yeah, there's a particular arc in there where she's paired, their training day, so to speak, and she's paired up with Guy Gardner, the resident a-hole of the DC universe. And uh, Simon is paired up with, with Kyle and they have such different approaches that it's fascinating to see them go back and forth. So highly recommend those issues in particular, but Dave, your best back issue discovery is something that I am dying and chomping at the bit to read next. Do it, do it because my nerdy goes to 
Superman smashes the clan with writing and art by Jean Luan Yang. And let me tell you, man, oh, I love this book so much. It is my favorite Superman story of the last few years. It is such a revelation taking place in the 1940s, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, Chinese immigration, prejudice, dealing with um, Superman trying to figure out um, how he can live with himself being alien as well and how he can integrate that into his personality. All of those themes are so rich and so interesting. And the art, very, very cartoony throwback stuff. Superman, you know, um, even has like the the, the old, more old-fashioned S on his chest. You know, it very much feels like a, you know, a, a throwback story. It is so very good. And the characterization of everybody is so good. Lois Lane is spot on. Superman is spot on. The new characters are great. Um, I would love to see like another mini series set in this universe or uh, an ongoing series even. This is such a beautiful, rich story. I cannot... I just I, I can't put into words how beautiful it is and how much it meant to me to sit down and read the story. It resonates in such a deep way um, with with a Superman fan, a lifelong Superman fan like myself, to see a a characterization that so perfectly encapsulates the things that I love about this character. Uh, holy smokes! I don't think there's anything better that I have read over the past year than Superman Smashes the Clan, Chris. There's there's so much. It, it feels like this series was written and and drawn directly like for me. Like this is specifically marketed to me and my personal interests. Like I am always trying to smash racism and xenophobia and ignorant clowns and the fact that this golden age era um which is predominantly white um typically uh is written and drawn by an asian american person a child of immigrants is absolutely just chef's kiss for me so i cannot wait to dive head over heels into this series yeah, you are going to love it, Chris. I think this is going to resonate with you in a very deep level. And I can't wait to talk to you about it once you've read it. All right, next up, we have the best indie creation where we leave the big two behind and look at some other comic book publishers. And what is the best stuff that they have put out? Chris, your nerdy goes too. Well, uh, shameless plug here, but um, I have a great privilege in writing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle articles for our friends at comicsbookcase.com. Uh, and I have two articles, not only a, a, a review of uh, issues one through four of The Last Ronin, but also uh, in anticipation for the finale of the series, but also a review of the fifth and final uh, issue um, which is far and away the greatest quote-unquote indie comic that I've read in quite some time. Um, it is written by Kevin Eastman and Tom Waltz with some input from Peter Laird, um, who famously has really washed his hands of the property since the mid to late 90s um, with the debacle of the next mutation. Um, with art by Eastman himself, Isaac and Esau Escorsa and Ben Bishop, among others, um, and a lot of people will come and look at this from the peripheral vision of, oh, it's the Dark Knight Returns, or it's, oh, it's Old Man Logan, but with turtles. But I think that's an oversimplification. And what makes The Last Ronin stand out 
so much for me, and I wrote this in one of the pieces, is that at their core, the turtles are a family. And it's about the close-knit relationships that they have for one another. And for one of the turtles, this one in particular, not to spoil something that's been out for quite some time, but for this turtle in particular, to go from that family dynamic and aspect and camaraderie, for him to now be alone and to face this seemingly insurmountable enemy uh, and, and seek justice for the murder of his family and friends um, is, is a marked change in my mind from Bruce Wayne or um, from Logan who are traditionally loners. You know, you say what you want about the X-Men, the found family of the X-Men and the bat family. There are still large elements of Batman and Wolverine that are by definition loners and seeing, you know, this turtle in particular grow beyond that decades later is a fascinating thing storytelling wise and character wise so the last ronin was an absolute joy to read and review and write about um, and i highly recommend it i'm really looking forward to reading this um big turtles fan i will freely admit i'm a little behind on the idw series but i love um everything that they've been doing with the turtles property over the last few years um, looking forward to diving back in and getting caught up. Uh, it's it's just really, really good stuff. Uh, really um, sort of a quick detour for a second, but I will say that I sincerely wish that Indie Comics had a, a one, one-stop shop for digital reading, uh, sort of at the Netflix of Indie Comics, because I, I sure I'm consuming 90% of my comic books these days via um, the DC and Marvel apps. Uh, and their subscription services. So I wish there was a subscription service that would allow me to dive into, you know, stuff like the turtles um, and, and keep up with indie comics a little bit better. That's sort of the 10% right now. I'm, I'm reading a lot of big two uh, just because of that. So I'm really, really looking forward to reading this. Uh, all the reviews have been fantastic. Um, and, and your endorsement certainly means a lot. So I'm definitely putting this on my list of something to seek out. Yeah. I will say that there is comiXology unlimited, but in my experience, um, it is kind of just enough to whet your appetite before you have to start buying stuff. Now, with the IDW stuff, I think you get the first 100 issues, or at least last I checked, the, the first 100 issues of the current ongoing of IDW um, are included in Unlimited. So maybe they've branched off since I, I stopped being a subscriber. But in my experience, it was just enough of things to get you excited about it before you hit the paywall. Um, yeah. But yeah, Dave, uh, we talked about chip, Chicken Soup for Souls earlier, and your indie creation seems to be just that for you. Oh, don't I love the scary stuff? Don't I love the horror content? And don't I absolutely love stuff like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where a very kick woman comes on the scene and takes care of business? Well, here we are. James Tynion uh, IV and Werther Deladera's Something is Killing the Children is frankly the it is so good it is unbelievable how good it is it should be illegal to have a comic book this good on the market it is absolutely ridiculous um it is everything that i look for in a good horror comic book it is you know it's disturbing the art is on point uh it has a great great hook uh, the characters are fascinating i cannot praise this book enough and if you at all 
into the horror genre or if you liked stuff like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I would highly recommend checking this out. It is significantly less on the humor, let me tell you, than something like Buffy. But my God, it is just so good. I, it is ridiculous. Just go read something is killing the children for crying out loud. What are you doing not reading this book, guys? Well, uh, I've come a long way when it comes to not being a chicken, but um, I'm, I'm really proud of myself. And I've said this time and time and again, one of the greatest developments and one of my favorite things to come out of you know, the creation of this podcast is Nerd Nightmare. As, as, as hesitant and as reticent as I was to to take place, uh, to, to take part, I should say, in, in that experience, it has really broadened my horizon. So maybe I'll be able to brave through this one. I think you definitely will, and I think you will find it uh, really, really good. Uh, even even if some of the stuff might put you off because you're still a horror novice, I think the quality of this book just shines through, even for people that aren't necessarily horror fans. I think this is just really good stuff, man. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a Boom Studios book, right? It is Boom, baby. I'm telling you what, booming. they... I, I, we had the great pleasure of talking to CEO, head honcho, Ross Ritchie, uh, about a year ago, and everything. They continue to crush it. The One of the things that I wanted to put as my best indie creation, but I only got to the first issue, and I, I fully plan on revisiting because it's it's been rave reviews, is the the many deaths of Layla Starr. Um, yes, and and so, but, but like, there's a, the Abbott book that I want to check out, but everything like and and this is part of it too you said with you know the lack of like an indie unlimited subscription service like that's something that i'm i'm really having to to wait on to to read those indie books until i have enough saved up but like those are definitely at the top of my list absolutely boom is just crushing it man all right let's switch gears and take a look at video games for a second um so what Chris, is the best video game you played this year, The Nerdy Ghost 2? You know me, I go for the heart of, of content and, and for um, like story-wise and like the relationships. And this is a previous nerd commendation that I raved about, but the Yakuza Like a Dragon game um, that I got as, as, as a benefit of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate um, was far and away my favorite game and the most meaningful game that I played. Um, it had some really soci- like succinct like societal commentary about the marginalized uh, groups of a population in a large city with like people who work in bathhouses and the undesirables quote unquote from the 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 fancy elites of you know Tokyo in this case um, but it is really fun game style as well um, a real I've, I've sorely missed turn-based gaming. Um, you know, with someone who's chronicled at great length my struggles with reaction times and things like that, having a turn-based, logic-based uh, gameplay style was a welcome change. So Yakuza Like a Dragon was visually uh, such a joy to play. Um, the game style was fun. It's that same over-the-top Yakuza gameplay that you love so much and storytelling aspects um ichiban kasuga is this like lovable loser as a protagonist that you just can't help but root for him even though he can't stop getting in his own way and i absolutely love this game you're right man turn-based games just not enough of them out there anymore that's one of the reasons why i absolutely love the south park games when they came out 
because they brought some of that turn-based nature back. Uh, I love turn-based stuff. Absolutely love it. So I'm really looking forward to trying this. I believe it's on Game Pass, um, which is, of course, the place to be, if you ask me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm really excited to try this one as soon as I have a little bit more time to do so. All right. We we are very much uh, sticking to the script here because you're throwing it back, Dave. I am what I am, my friend. The nerdy for the best video game I played over the last year goes to a retro game, uh, specifically Secret of Evermore. Uh, guys, as it turns out, uh, I am emulating uh, a metric crap ton on an Android device recently connected uh, through a nice clip to my Xbox controller. Uh, now, obviously... Uh, I only emulate games that I actually own physical copies of. I, I tr- you know, follow the letter of the law as best I can. So, you know, everybody chill out there. But let me just tell you, replaying some retro games on this device has been uh, an absolute pleasure. And Secret of Evermore, which has gotten such a bad rep when it first came out, is such a joy to play. Uh, it really, really holds up, actually, as it turns out. Uh, so this one was actually developed uh, in the U.S., uh, which was, you know, pretty crazy for this kind of game, and uses the same engine as uh, Secret of Mana did, a very, very acclaimed game, um, and got Secret of Evermore kind of got like a lot of fan anger because there was a sequel to Secret of Mana that was not released at the time, not localized because it was such a massive game and it came out so late in the um, SNES's life that they just didn't localize the game and instead. Uh, people said, oh, we, we're getting this as a replacement, which was never really the intention of this game being made. So Secret of Evermore uh, is about a young boy and his dog that gets sucked into another world um, and have to navigate that to try to find a way home. The gameplay is you know, reminiscent of something like uh, The Legend of Zelda. You, know, you have dungeons and stuff. You have uh, different towns that you have to explore. You have to interact with people. But it also does some really neat stuff that you just kind of see see some ideas blossoming that later will become really important. Like, you know, for example, the crafting system, you know, the early alchemy system where you find uh, ingredients out in the world and then you learn, you know, quote unquote spells and you combine these ingredients for different effects. You know, this, you know, crafting and, and you know, resource gathering has become incredibly important in moder- modern gaming and seeing sort of the roots of that in Secret of Evermore has been fun. The game has a great sense of humor, The graphics are top-notch because, hey, we're talking about the SNES at at its height here. And then it has this really, really cool soundtrack, too. Like, it's this this sort of almost ambient kind of soundtrack, really, you know, using a lot of uh, noises and stuff that you would maybe find in the places where you're actually at, but still blending it into kind of something that is reminiscent of a musical score. It's so moody and weird and dark and so unlike anything else that you find in a SNES game at this time. Dude, revisiting this game was my best gaming experience of the year. So for that alone, Secret of Evermore, the underappreciated gem deserves the nerdy man. Man, this is really bringing me back. I'll never forget going to my cousin's house and... um... He had a SNES and he had like that adapter where you would put the cassette in and then it would like have a slot for a Game Boy game to go in there. And playing that original Ninja Turtles game, like famously one of the most difficult games ever. So, um, yeah, that's 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 bringing me back to that. 
Yeah, the SNES is a very special system, and replaying some SNES games right now is just such a huge pleasure. I know, I know, I know. I should have probably played something a little newer, but, um, man, some of the oldies just hold up and are just so much fun to revisit. All right, that brings us to the best TV show that we have enjoyed so far this year. Chris, what have you got? Um, so this might be a controversial pick because it's it's the very in-line thing to criticize the MCU because when you don't have something that's in line with that, it's you throw stones that are those above you. So um, I loved Moon Knight. And for all its critics, for those who were huge fans of the character going in that didn't see enough. I do. I enjoyed, you know, going in and scratching the surface of the baseline elements of that character and then discovering him further in comics. As a result, I think Oscar Isaac acted as took us off more on that in a minute. I love the character of Layla. Um, the importance of seeing, uh, you know, a Palestinian actress, you know, representing Egypt and, you know, and, and the important representation there and, you know, seeing a female superhero with the Scarlet Scarab um, was, was incredibly fun to see. And then, you know, I'm a sucker for mythology and seeing these Egyptian deities going mano a mano, um, you know, outside the great pyramids of Giza was, was just fascinating to see. And, um, I'm, I'm always a huge fan of like those globe trotting type of films and series. And uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for that stuff. So this played to all of my interests and awakened this interest in the character of Moon Knight for me going forward. So it's it's my favorite show that I've watched uh, this past year. And I still have not watched it because guess what? I don't have a lot of time to watch TV. <laughs> Man, it is it is such a chore to try to sit down and find time to actually watch something. But I am working on it. I actually have a TV show that I can give a nerdy to because I watched a little bit something. But yeah, I'm excited to watch Moon Knight, man. It looks really interesting. And I, too, am really interested in delving some in the comic books and getting a better sense of this character because visually, at, at the very least, super, super interesting looking. Um, and one of the one of the Marvel characters I know the, the, the least about. So I'm, I'm really excited to delve into that. Yeah, let's get to your pick, Dave, because I love it so much. And it was neck and neck with Moon Knight for me. So uh, my nerdy uh, goes to Strange New Worlds. If you want to hear me rambling for about 15 minutes about Strange New Worlds, please, for crying out loud, uh, go uh, listen to last week's episode when it was my nerd commendation. Uh, but Strange New Worlds is all about the adventures of the Enterprise crew 10 years before Kirk, um, featuring, of course, the command of uh, Captain Christopher Pike, a younger Spock. Um, you have, of course, number one as the first officer. Uh, these are all the returning characters, you know, Dr. Mbenga, Nurse Chapel, characters that popped up in the original series or in the Lost Pilot episode. Um, so here we are with a show that recasts a whole bunch of classic characters and does so, so well that it is uh, basically a seamless situation. Watching Strange New Worlds truly feels like watching something from Kirk's era. Uh, the whole vibe of Starfleet and how things get done, how the characters interact, feels very much uh, of a cloth with the original series, if, you know, of course, slightly updated for modern sensibilities. And so uh, after watching the first three episodes, I can already tell you that this is uh, my favorite TV show that I have gotten a chance to delve into so far. And I think the overwhelming thing that I've seen from Star Trek fans across social media is 
this is Star Trek in its purest form. And it's, it's truly such a joy to watch. And I said this when you nerd commended it last week. Um, what a time to be a Star Trek fan. I mean, with everything going on and, and Paramount Plus kind of trying to elbow their way in with the, the state of the streaming wars and everything. And they really have some feathers in their cap when it comes to the Star Trek content they've got going on. Um, you know, Discovery, I, I've loved from its inception. Below Decks um, uh, it has been a joy to watch as well. Um, not below decks, <laughs> lower decks. Sorry, that's another show. Um, <laughs> it was is, is just like completely divorcing itself from all the seriousness uh, that the self seriousness that Star Trek can be at its core, and just having fun with it. So you have the best of both worlds, pun fully intended. And um, I, I've got to dive into the second season of Picard. That's the one that I'm probably least interested in. It seems, uh, at least with the third and final season, they're just trying to get the TNG band back together. Um, but everything else about the, the Star Trek content coming out of Paramount Plus has been just a home run one after another. And Strange New Worlds is is one of the lead horses in that race. Yeah, I totally agree, man. It's just such a good show. Uh at the top of what's been produced over the last few years in Star Trek, I think, and uh, may long the series reign. I hope that they continue it a long time. I think the first season only got like 10 episodes. I hope they up that for the second season and they really dig in because this is just good stuff, man. All right, so time for our next category. And here we have some strong agreement, Chris. What is both your and my winner for the best nerd flick of the year well there were a lot of great entries last year it was kind of tough because due to the pandemic we didn't have a whole lot of releases um i think we both went with something that was straight to streaming there weren't a lot of theatrical releases last year but this year um we had a lot to choose from and there were a lot of strong contenders but for me, it was an easy choice, and that was Matt Reeves' The Batman. I think um, this is a return to the character at its core. Um, Robert Pattinson in the role of Bruce Wayne was probably the most pleasant surprise of the year for me when it comes to nerd content. Uh, the surrounding cast as well. Uh, it was moody. It was emotional, emo, if you will in the best possible way. And um, if nothing else, in a, in a an embarrassment of riches in this film, I think far and away the thing that tipped the scales to me was the score uh, and the soundtrack to this film. It was so symbolic and perfectly meshed with everything else that was a part of this film. Uh, you know, I mean, my my daughter immediately as soon as she wakes up alexa play something in the way um so it, it's a it's a, a darn near perfect film and i'm excited to see what we do with this with this series going forward because we have a confirmed sequel in the works and i can't wait to see it i too absolutely adored this movie uh, it was such an interesting uh take on the whole batman mythology uh, so many cool choices made in this movie from you know the look of the movie from the soundtrack from the casting um i just i could rave about this movie for an hour so i'm just gonna cut it short and say this one 
absolutely deserves the nerdy for the best nerd flick. And and that doesn't mean there weren't other good movies, but holy crap, did the Batman knock it out of the park. All right, that brings us to uh, best actress. Um, Chris, the nerdy goes to... Well, it comes from a film that was the strongest contender for best nerd flick. And Dave, when you finally get a chance to watch this movie, I can't wait to divulge and talk about it at length. But believe me, Elizabeth Olsen was far and away the best acting performance overall, regardless of gender, that we saw in the past year um, as Wanda Maximoff. And so Elizabeth Olsen as... uh, as the Scarlet Witch in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was easily the best acting performance this year. I will say that although I was a little bit as a, uh, you know disappointed with the heel turn of Wanda Maximoff, I kind of kind of saw it coming, but still, um, I was really hoping that they wouldn't go that hardcore. I mean, she she spaghettied Mister Fantastic. What more can I say there? That full on villain at this point, but her performance in this movie was so very good. It was so riveting to watch her uh, in, in every sense of the word. It was just, she was mesmerizing every time she was on the screen to the point where some people claimed this was, you know, her movie and not a Dr. Strange movie. Um, she really did absolute fantastic work. So I can totally understand why you would give her the nerdy Chris. All right, so let's let's look at your choice for best actress because um, I, this is something that is completely off my radar. <laughs> yes, I am back in the weirdo sphere. So um, obviously, this is not directly from this year; it's from a couple of years ago, I believe. Um, but I just watched it over the past year. Uh, I'm a big, big, big horror fan, as we once again have established in this episode. And so uh, Netflix produced a Fear Street trilogy, of course, Fear Street, a book series uh, by R.L. Stein. Um, and the main character in this uh, series of movies was uh, played by a Canadian actress, Kiana Madeira, who absolutely knocked it out of the park. Um through three different movies and three very different performances. She was always on point, always believable, always mesmerizing, always held your attention. Um, So the Fear Street trilogy uh, starts in like 1994, um, where, you know, all these weird killers are emerging. It turns out this is a supernatural curse-related kind of thing. Um, And the main character's uh, girlfriend uh, becomes part of this curse, leading into the second movie where we get an extended flashback where she is trying to figure out what happened last time when this all happened in the 1970s. And then finally bringing us through the finale, which takes place like in the 1600s and deals a little bit like Salem style, you know, witch stuff. Um, and in in this movie, she actually kind of is like it, it embodying like the initial person uh, that was involved in the curse. And so she's kind of playing her, you know, the, the same character from the first two movies, but also this other character. Um, and she knocks it out of the park here, too. Um, I, I really, really like the Fear Street trilogy and how it kind of captures the tropes of certain kinds of scary movies and then really does something interesting with them. But the thing that you know holds it all together by far is Kiana Madeira's performance. And, and boy, oh boy, do I hope that she has a long and healthy career ahead of her because her performance in these movies was absolutely fantastic. Man, I don't have a whole lot to comment on as I've not seen this, but you said R.L. Stein and the 1990s, and that immediately brought me back. I can smell my elementary school 
library right now. As I was checking out those books, I can smell the laminating machine. Um, that's all I think about when I think of R.L. Stein and those incredibly weird books that I used to read back in the day of something like the giant brain that was attacking the city or uh, that one that one ventriloquist doll. Yeah, so that's bringing me back. Alrighty, so next up we have best actor in a nerdy flick. Chris, the nerdy ghost too. Well, I hinted at it before, but Oscar Isaac uh, in Moon Knight, particularly, I think it was the fifth episode, really knocked out of the park. A lot of people made jokes about his British accent and kind of how, how it kind of wobbled or traveled up and down the coast, as some Brits said. Um, but the playing of multiple personalities and and uh, you know the, the DID, you know. Um, character to begin with was really fascinating to watch and um the really the selling of that childhood trauma of the next to last episode really drove it home for me so um just seeing oscar isaac being able to fully flesh out his chops um the character of poe dram uh poe dameron and uh, in the sequel trilogy really left a lot to be desired um not and that's not anything to say about Oscar Isaac is you know with the directorial vision of that franchise really left me wanting a lot more now um there are some rumblings that the sequel era is going to be revisited in future feature films so that gives me some hope but um seeing Oscar Isaac in a starring role and letting him clear out and just act as took us off was it was a real pleasant uh surprise here um, and I look forward to more from him, you know, as, as, as an actor. And I truly enjoyed it. Oscar Isaac is a great actor. Anyways, I really liked his work in, in, in the, uh, sequel trilogy, even though I didn't like everything that happened in there. <laughs> um, I will also say though, that I really liked his work in Dune. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing him in Moon Knight. Um, I'm a fan and I, I'd like to see him act his Tushas off once really given some material what that he can dig into, you know? All right, Dave, you've got one of my favorites, but it's a property that I haven't seen yet. Dude, watch Free Guy. What's wrong with you? Uh, best actor for me in a nerdy flick was uh, Ryan Reynolds in Free Guy. Um, Free Guy, of course, is uh, taking place in a sort of uh, open world MMO style video game. And Ryan Reynolds plays a, a non-playable character that sort of becomes self-aware and slowly starts taking over the game and it's a very very good movie funny in a lot of ways um heartfelt and his performance uh going sort of from oblivious to sort of wise you know trying to find his way and becoming slowly self-aware very very cool um big big fan of his performance in this movie he totally deserves the nerdy yeah that's skyrocketing to the top of my to watch list now all right next up we have writer of the year uh Chris, the nerdy goes too. Well, I, I detailed a lot of this with my first uh, nerdy award winner, but uh, in Al Ewing, I trust everything that Al has written. I have gobbled it up and I absolutely love it from, um, you know, Immortal Hulk, which was, I think, your, your best ongoing last year, um, which was fantastic and well-deserved to um, something that I love deeply and we'll be talking about next week, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and, and a series that I miss so very much. And then everything that he's done with the mutants from sword to now X-Men red, 
Um, I also wholeheartedly nerd commend once again, his entire Marvel run, um, kind of a, a common thread of characters, particularly with his ultimates work. Um, those are my, my all time favorites. So Al Ewing is far and away my favorite writer that I will read and follow to the ends of the earth. Although I've not read everything that the guy has produced, I will say that I really, 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 really loved Immortal Hulk. So I can totally understand where you're coming from with this. Um, the guy's quality. And uh, I'm currently reading a homework assignment that you gave me that was also Al Ewing and is also really good quality. So I'm looking forward to talking more about that in a future episode. All right, Dave, uh, I love it when we have a, a person that makes a clean sweep in an award ceremony and you got a candidate here. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and just combine my best writer and best artist so I can just wi uh, wipe this out of the way. Gene uh, Luan Yang is a superstar. Um, he he should have all the work. Um, he should basically write and draw everything. And I'm basing this 100% completely on Superman Smashes the Clan. His writing is impeccable. His art is absolutely gorgeous. Gene, uh, you're a superstar. You can do no wrong. And um, I read the first issue of this series, but I've heard glowing things about it. Um, he's writing Shang-Chi currently at Marvel, so that may be next on your to-read list as well. Absolutely. It's just, what a superstar, man. All right, Chris, final category artist of the year. Who gets it for you? Well, uh, I've raved about their work before, um, and I'll do so again. But it, it, they go hand in hand. I'm coloring outside the lines, pun fully intended, but Pepe, uh, Pepe Larraz and Marte Gracia, Pepe as far as pencils uh, goes, and then Marte Gracia's colors, they are a match made in heaven when it comes to comic book art, and they are inseparable. And um, if you need no other reason to read the current X-Men run, it is their magnificent work on art that is like my dreamscape uh, made to life and just the inventiveness with new characters and new nemeses for um, the X-Men to face. And then for the interesting dynamic that they have with this roster, including classic faves like Cyclops and Jean Grey and the, your new favorite, which is inevitably going to be Sync uh, and Sunfire is uh, a great character as well. Um, so I, I love the work of Laraz and Gracia and it, it has to be them for me. So although I haven't read much of the X-Men, you now got me really fascinated just to check out this artwork. So I'm going to be uh, Googling some art here, I think. Alrighty folks, that's it for our nerdies. Who are your award winners this year? You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Chris and at that Nerd Dave. Tell us who your award winners are for the past year. Do you agree with our assessment or are there people that we missed that were more deserving? We can't wait to hear from you. After a quick break, we'll be back with our Nerd Commendation, so stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, we're back and it's time for... Now, Chris, I'm very, very interested to hear about your nerd commendation this week. 
right. So here's another shameless uh, plug for my work with Comics Bookcase, but my work that is about to be released this upcoming week um, is the entirety of the pairing of Batman and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know, judged on the, based on the entirely uh, inescapable popularity of Batman as a whole and then the success and the acclaim of the Batman. Um, I wrote a feature article on all the team-ups of Batman and the Ninja Turtles. So I, being the completionist that I am, I read all three of the six-issue miniseries by James Tinney in the fourth and um, Freddie Williams the second, uh, which were wholly enjoyable. Um, and I have to say, in all actuality and in all honesty, the animated feature that was released direct to streaming uh, in 2019 was actually my favorite. And I, I found that incredibly hard to believe because usually when you get a video adaptation, whether that's live action or animation, um, it, it kind of is disappointing. But this was far and away not the case here. Um it was a pleasant surprise because when you look at the voice cast, you have some favorites like Tara Strong as both Harley Quinn um, and Poison Ivy, a legend in her own right. I mean, like really like a Hall of Fame resume. But then you have like a relative newcomer with Troy Baker, who voiced not only Batman, but the Joker as well. Um, Eric Bausa is is great, um, yeah, you know, as, as a veteran. Uh, Darren Chris is, is great as well. Um and this was loosely based on that first um, crossover franchise, uh, crossover series, I should say, um, where you have uh, Raz al Ghul. I say Raz. It, it just sounds right. Raish sounds like nails on a chalkboard to me. I'm sorry. Raz al Ghul. I, dude, I agree totally. And, and, and if we're basing it on an Arabic character, Raz is the more traditional Arabic pronunciation from my experience. So um, language nerd, you know, bear with me. But um, so Raz al Ghul and Shredder, I mean, like, what better villain team up do you need? So Raz al Ghul and, and Shredder are teaming up here. And then you have that trope of the trope of all tropes of heroes that misunderstand one, one another and they square off against each other for, at first and then they eventually team up. Um, they made a distinct difference here that I thought was intriguing. I don't know if I liked it for better or for worse. Um, but there's no multiversal hijinks, which in, on one hand um, was a welcome change because multiverse seems to be like the gaucher thing to do right now. But if, if you, you read it here directly, Gotham and New York City that the Turtles live in, uh, the New York City that the Turtles live in it seems to be just like uh, an hour or two drive. And so they made the commute to Gotham and they, uh, I guess, exist in the same world. Um, so that was a marked difference from the comic book series. There's no multiverse shenanigans here. Um, but far and away, what I loved so much about this is what I found to be admittedly lacking in the Tinian series. Uh, Writing-wise, I felt like the, the biggest critique that I made of the comic book series is that Michelangelo and similarly comic relief type characters were not as well served. And, you know, based on your recommendations of Tinian's other work, um, it makes sense. 
you know, um, the characters that are well served in his writing are Batman, are Raphael, are Leonardo, those dark, broody type characters. And with something like, you know, his work on Batman or something is killing the children, even from an outsider's perspective, it would make sense that those gritty, moody, broody type characters would be best served here. But I think that this animated film is a real beautiful blend of not only those types of characters, but also Michelangelo. And you can tell that Nickelodeon co-produced this with Warner Brothers because the work of, you know, something like the 2012 animated series of the Ninja Turtles is is well influenced here. Um, and Michelangelo shines, not um, in exchange of, but right in line with those darker type of characters. And um, Kyle Mooney, if you're a, a Saturday Night Live fan, he's a regular on there and he shines as Michelangelo, in my opinion. Um, so this takes all of the great elements of the comic book series, which if we're being honest, and I said this in my piece, I enjoyed the third one the most because it is, um, unashamedly a comic book to its core. And then it embraces all the goofy stuff of a multiversal, um, type shenanigans. And you have the original Mirage Ninja Turtles in black and white, you know, right there with, and then it, it combines both the mythos of Batman and the Ninja Turtles, and it smushes them all together in this weird and crazy stew. So um, I, I was pleasantly surprised that the third iteration, when usually when you get into a comic book series like that, by the time you get to the third one, you're like, oh, okay, we're just going at it for a check. But I, I really appreciated how Tinian and, and Williams kind of, threw everything at the wall and leaned into the medium of comic books there. And it was far and away my favorite of the book series, but uh, the animated series, I absolutely loved it. Our animated film, I should say, absolutely loved it. And it is my, one of my strongest nerd commendations that I've had. It was a pleasant surprise. I thought it was going to be like, oh, okay, I'm just doing my homework here so I can write this piece, but I absolutely loved it. And it was a whole lot of fun and I highly recommend it. I'm really excited to watch that. I watched all, um, I read all three miniseries, actually, I think before you even did, and I really, really loved them, um, each one for what they were. Um, and so seeing this in some kind of like uh, animated form and actually improving upon the story, uh, that would be really exciting. So I'm all about this, man. I'm totally checking this out. I'm, I want to revisit this. I'm gonna, I want to pin you for an opinion. Of the three, which one did you like best? For me, for one and two were very much, you've got peanut butter in my jelly, you've got jelly in my peanut butter in the second one. And then the third one was just like, let's go crazy. It's funny you say that. I thought you might end up liking the third one the least because it's very much rooted in like how how crazy can DC go with its multiverse stories? Like, you know, it's completely like it's, it's bat poop crazy. Um, but it was my favorite as well because I'm such a big DC fan and I kind of read so many stories that, that operate like that. It felt, you know, like a DC multiverse story that, in you know, kind of applied that approach to the turtles and i loved it for that so my favorite was the third one as well i loved just that combined origin story even though it turned out to be a, a falsehood i thought that was so fun to reimagine everything we thought we knew about the turtles and batman respectively and smushing that together was so much fun yeah absolutely man all right i'm excited to talk 
um, about your nerd commendation this week because I had my qualms um, about it, but now having talked to you about it extensively, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, so my nerd commendation uh, is She-Hulk by Dan Slott. Uh, I think this is really the perfect time to to read the series if you're a comics fan and you've never read it, because I think there's at least some inspiration for, for the She-Hulk series being drawn from this run. Uh, the run begins with um, She-Hulk kind of... Uh, you know, has has been in her She-Hulk form and doesn't really like to revert back into her regular form. Uh, kind of getting kicked out of the uh, Avengers Mansion, um, kind of losing her job and trying to ha- like reinvent herself a little bit. So a guy comes along who wants to hire her for a law firm for their new um, sort of like a superhuman division, basically a division that's going to deal exclusively with like superhero law and the like. Um, but his condition is that if he hires her, he doesn't want She-Hulk. He wants her only in her regular form while she is working in the office. And so She-Hulk is kind of stuck, you know, kind of um, dealing with her duality. And what is it about her regular self that she doesn't like? And why does she want to be in her She-Hulk form all the time? And that's sort of the jumping off point to an incredibly interesting and humorous romp through the Marvel Universe, through the eyes of She-Hulk and various court cases. Um, It's a really, really cool uh, supporting cast uh, that is part of the law firm, including a rival lawyer, a potential love interest. They have this really cool thing going on where they have a bunch of comic book nerds in the basement for a reference library. Uh, with a bunch of long boxes full of comic books. Because in this series, every adventure that these superheroes have is chronicled in licensed comic books by Marvel. And so if you want to see what happened to a given superhero at any given time, you go and look back in the long boxes in the comic books. And so this is like their legal library. Like, is there a precedent for this? Has something like this ever happened before? And they have all these long boxes of comic books. I absolutely love that. Um, It's humorous. Uh, The humor lands more often than it doesn't. There are a couple of instances where it doesn't land and it's a little icky. But overall, I have to say, uh, Dan Slott's take on She-Hulk is really, really fun. And I can kind of see uh, the roots of some of the things that the MCU, based on the trailer, seems to be doing with the character. So yeah, man, I mean, if there's ever a time to read She-Hulk by Dan Slott, this would be it. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think we talked um, off camera of one of those jokes that really fell flat and was kind of tone deaf at the time. You know, this was written several years ago, if I'm not mistaken, yeah? Yes, yes, it's it's an older run. Yeah, so if this was written now and today, I don't think that joke um, would be made. Um, I have a complicated, you know, history with Dan Slott. Um, you know, 10 years is an unprecedented run on a character like Spider-Man. And so it has some really high highs, like something with like Superior is the best of the best. And then it tapers off for me after that. Um, And it does end on a high note with ASM 801. Um, The Red Goblin uh, kind of final arc was fun. Um, But there are a lot of gaps in there that... um, that I, I don't know. It just is, it's, it's a, it's a complicated history. As I said, um, I haven't read a whole lot of his fantastic four. Um, but the, the, the Franklin Richards retcon of him not being a mutant, um, 
will garner him an eternal side eye from me. So um, maybe divorced from the editorial mess that is Spider-Man, the Spider-Man office um, and, and what have you will, will um, let, let it uh, play to its full part here. So I'm excited to read this. I think your complicated relationship with Dan Slott will continue into the series. Like I said, there are some, some instances where the humor doesn't hit. Um, there are some a couple of icky situations that I don't think would have gotten past editorial. But at the same time, he's working really hard to kind of put a stamp on She-Hulk and have a very specific approach to the character. And um, this goes over two different uh, volumes. And by the time he leaves... Um, a very, very good writer, Peter David, actually takes over. But he he basically says in the notes in the back of the his first issue, there is no way that I could have in any way imitated what Dan Slott was doing. I just can't I can't do that. So I'm just gonna take it in a completely different direction. And I'm 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 finding that new direction to be an extremely acquired taste. So I think Slot did more right than wrong by She Hulk. Um it's definitely worth a read, Chris. Oh, from one complicated writer to another. But um, uh, yeah, so I'm excited. Um, I, I think when it comes to doing my homework for um, in, in anticipation for the She-Hulk series, I'm going to scale back. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Caleb, has recommended the sensational stuff. So I'm going to go a little bit further back and then and then I'll eventually get here. And I'll probably pick up the sensational stuff too. That's the wonderful thing about Marvel Unlimited. I can always decide to punt back and read a little more. All righty, folks. Well, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for the last two years. If you like what you heard and you have not done so yet, please get on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a, a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find our podcast pretty much wherever podcasts can be found. Tune in Radio Spotify, Apple Podcasts. It, we're everywhere, including our own website, nerdbyword.com. And as always, be sure to hit us up on social media and interact with us. Give us ideas on past episodes, on what you'd like to see in future episodes. And as always, you can find us at uh, NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or individually, that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.